Here we go. Here we go, season five, episode four, take one. Welcome to season five of the Richfield Library podcast. This is a podcast made up of three library workers who work at the Richfield Library of the Akron Summit County Public Library System. This is about the completely random stuff we read. What we read is as haphazard as our personalities. Poetry, nonfiction, teen fiction, graphic novels, who knows what each session will highlight. What are three library workers in a small Midwest town that's so cute and adorable finding interesting enough to talk about? Well, just listen in. All right, everyone, how are you doing? You're hearing Jen, who else is on with me? I'm Christina. I'm I'm doing very good. I just got over a big chapter of a project that I'm working on, so I'm feeling very relieved and like the world is full of possibility again. <laughs> you just finished a class. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And okay. I'm Kat. I'm I'm doing well. I'm a little bit disoriented because while this podcast will post obviously later than we're recording it, the weather went from 80 degrees to 30 degrees and since we didn't really have a great deal of snow I'm very disoriented and I and I really feel that it's September but it's not September it's April and I just I feel very discombobulated is how I feel I'm feeling the same mm-hmm. I was in a at a conference in Washington DC for museum and the web it was awesome and it was 80 degrees and was so hard to um to come in and listen to the sessions, although it wasn't because the sessions were absolutely fabulous. <laughs> and I got to meet people from all over the world. Um, a shout out to uh, the Plus M Museum, which is in oh. Hong Kong. I want to make sure I, I'm going to double fact check myself. Um, and they did a presentation on their um, exhibit called The Cabinet. And mm. it, you could check it out online, but it's, it's just marvelous moving panel system where they shuffle panels of art and then they gamified it and you can actually interact with this cabinet so it's it's absolutely it's just the coolest thing I've ever seen so my daughter is so excited because she wants to go to all these places in Asia so she says good now mom has an excuse to actually take me there (laughs) (laughs) so so I'm going to start saving (laughs) <laughs> um, and that has been added to my bucket list. So, yeah. You got a museum journey. Museum journey, but it's beautiful. So, yeah. I'm curious, uh, what are we all reading? Because I'm looking across the table, and I see, I think we're on a similar kick, everybody. But let's see. Who wants to go first? <laughs> you know what? I'll go first, because I always go last, which I'm much more comfortable with. So, I will break myself out of my comfort zone. What was the book? Oh, yes. The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. I will lose control a little bit, and I will go first (laughs) instead of last. (laughs) Go for it. All right, so my theme this season is trying to talk a little bit more about library resources, and connected to that would be library displays, and I'm talking about in-house displays. So one thing that we shook up this year, we used to do a really great thing called um, a mystery book club. It was like a passive book club, so we would choose 12 titles, and we'd have the book available every month. But last year, the books were great, but interest really started to flag. So we decided to kind of try something new. So I am a big fan 
a really big fan of challenges. And um, so the other one we did last year is the wonderful Richfield Kiwanis Club. They actually labeled all of the trees on our Storywalk Trail, the Carter Pedago Trail. And so we did a, a passive bingo sheet last summer reading. Of course, I underestimated how much the trees would grow. So the success rate was low because it turns out the leaves covered a lot of the labels. <laughs> but I appreciate everyone trying. The effort was there the and I thought it was clever. The effort was there and the love of trees was there. So it's all good. Anyway, so we revamped the Mystery Reads to the Mystery Reads Challenge. I'm very fond of dorky slogans. So the slogan for this is, solve the crimes, read 8 of 12 titles by December 31st, 2023. Um, So the goal of this one is to get people excited to see which books they really enjoy pulling off the shelf because it's a mixture of different genres. Also, some of the books are more modern. Others were written quite some time ago and then you're able to rate them on the sheet that you pick up so the rating is actually made up of magnifying glasses so you could give it one magnifying glass or you could give it five magnifying glasses like I would love to really dive deeply into this and see it in microscopic detail or yeah zoom out very very far out zoom out and put a filter on it (sighs) yeah so there are 12 titles like I said you only have to read eight And then you just turn in your little slip that's on the side of the challenge paper, and there's going to be a mystery basket raffle. It is a mystery basket raffle, but no, it is not a mystery to me what would be in it, but it is a mystery (laughs) to you, (laughs) because that would be a spoiler. But no, I'm very, very excited about this. So I'll tell you some of the most popular titles so far. It's been interesting to monitor the display. So one of the most popular ones is Long Bright River by Liz Moore. That's one. Um, I do have a Louise Penny. I know Louise Penny is very prolific. I went back and forth about whether to include her because I think she's a fantastic writer and very good at plotting, but I was afraid people wouldn't maybe want to jump into that because it's kind of in the middle of the series. But that one actually has served pretty well. Um, But also, people are really, really going for Kate Atkinson. She wrote Transcription. She also wrote Life After Life, which was on my TBR last year, and I re-listened to that podcast. And no, guys, I haven't read it yet. Don't judge me. (laughs) (laughs) At least you're honest. At least I'm honest. Um, But the two I have on the table with me, I don't want to spoil them, but I did bring them for a purpose. So the first one is Velvet Was the Night by Sylvia Marino-Garcia. And I'm highlighting that one because when this podcast launches, you will have the opportunity to sign up. Wow, I'm like the PSA girl today. (laughs) This is like library. This is library advertising in a very hardcore form. Not sure if this is good or not. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, the Richfield Heritage Preserve is right down the road from us, and it's so beautiful there. And we've been so lucky to partner with them on some adult programming. So last fall, we did this really great book club called Suspense and Some Wars, which is exactly how it sounds. You got to hike out to a pavilion at night, and we had really scary weather, so it was very effective. (laughs) And you would make some wars and talk about two books that we specifically read for the book club. And it was so successful that we're doing it again. So we're doing Danger at Dusk right now. And then the one that's upcoming that features Velvet Was the Night is going to be, ahem, <laughs> the space between the stars. Oh. Noir. Oh. I've been wanting to say noir just like that. Can you all since. hear the organ music? <laughs> dun, 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 yeah. Dun. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, copyright to... Chandler because I took that from one of his Marlowe's but I just thought it was actually kind of beautiful um so Velvet Was the Night will be the July book 
and I highly recommend it. Silvia Moreno Garcia, if you remember, wrote Mexican Gothic. Oh, that was She's so written good. many other books, but I love Mexican Gothic. I think it's one of the best Gothics that's come out probably in the last 15 years. And I just love her style in general. She's a very effortless writer. Also spine tingling. So Velvet Was the Night is noir. And it's a really good one too because it's set in the 70s. Um, a lot of noir kind of makes you think, yeah, of Marlowe in the 40s. But no, the 70s is also a pretty good gritty decade. And velvety. And velvety. <laughs> Velvet Was the Night, the space between the stars. <laughs> um, and the other one is more, more modern and sort of... Um, I don't want to say techno, but I guess I will say techno. It's by Blake Crouch, and it's called Recursion. And Recursion um, is about misplaced memories and what that would mean in terms of crime or murder or mystery. I say, dang, that's me every day. Misplaced, <laughs> misplaced my coffee cup, misplaced my memories, misplaced... But anyway, that's, I, haven't, I haven't committed yeah. a crime as, as far you as know I of. know, but I probably misplaced that. Misplacing coffee is kind of a crime. <laughs> A crime to your brain. Um, so those are two. I, I just wanted to feature those because they're quite divergent in subject matter. Yeah. Um, one in the 70s, one one more modern and sort mm-hmm. of sci-fi. But I highly recommend both of them. I actually recommend all the books on this list. We were really careful in what we selected. We wanted to have a, um, a, a wide array so that people would perhaps pick something up they normally wouldn't. And that was one of the feedback points we got from Suspense and S'mores that um, people were like, I would have never picked up this book on my own. But they will because it's part of a program so that's my little can library your, advertisement can i see your list really quick oh, can we course. shuffle it across the table yes, we i read recursion it drove me crazy oh, i i i fall for his trap every time oh. his premise his premises are always so good and then mm-hmm. i don't want to spoil but I'm always like, oh, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, every time he has a new one out, I'm always like, I'm not going to do it. And then I read the back. And I'm like, oh, that sounds so good. No, I totally hear that. <laughs> they also do really good covers for his. And that drives me absolutely bonkers. Yeah, the covers are fantastic. The covers are so fantastic. Oh, and this one, too, angry. if you looked at the front cover, <laughs> oh, I initially does. did not think that this would be. It's actually like kind of cataloged in both, like suspense, mystery, and fiction. And it's, I mean, my initial thought was totally sci-fi when I saw this cover. Yeah, so I, I like it. Say, so I sort of, did I misplace a memory where this was a mystery? Right. Yeah. It looks like an infinity loop. They'd all, yeah. I mean, they all make great oh, shows, the, you know? Mm-hmm. Recursion, I guess that's the, <laughs> would be. The yeah. one that I keep checking out for you is um, Auntie Poldy. Oh, I like uh, okay, and I thought you would love that so much, but that's the one that everyone's talking about. So that's that's making Yay, so Auntie Poldy and series. the Sicilian Lions. That's that's going out quite a lot. I am the aspirational elder. I, I think it's first on the list. And every time I check that out, I'm like, don't say anything about if they're aspiring to be. Yes. <laughs> Are yes. you also aspiring to be a really cool elderly but That person. one keeps going. Gonna get a couple eyebrow time. raises. Uh, <laughs> so. I love Poldy. So much. She's so cool. <sighs> so yeah. And sadly, staff cannot participate. Otherwise, I think you would probably have two already entered <laughs> into this. So, what's really fun is to see how open people are to trying new things. I, I do think that when you come and in, come into the library, like our goal, of course, is come to our display, check out something you wouldn't normally check out. But what's really interesting about it is, like, for the book club that we do, well, we do several book clubs here, but for the Richfield Readers Book Club. A few times, people have said, "Like I would, not, I would not have read this," but they will mm-hmm. read it. They mm-hmm. will read it, and it's also, I think, much more. I find it more interesting when people 
say that and but they enjoyed it they just wouldn't read it again or if they really strongly disliked it I think if you're ever deciding to not go to a book club because mm-hmm. you hated something please change your mind because the the conversation is so much it's more so interesting good. those are better yes, yes it is ones. because sometimes when people point out something they didn't like it can show up like a blind spot that we personally have because we did like that particular aspect or it can show something that our brains just totally skipped over in terms of plot some of my favorite discussions that we've ever had have been books that some people love, some people were like, eh, whatever. And then some people just very strongly <laughs> hated <laughs> and would gladly throw the book out the window if they wouldn't have to pay for it <laughs> because it's a library book. So, so yeah. So yeah, and I am also feeling very good about this because I have been consistent. I was very tempted to talk about books that have nothing to do with mystery, and I was like, no, this season I have committed. I have committed to being Little Miss Adult Services. Guess what's <laughs> out there, guys? And so far, so far... I have done my podcast notes that I made. Yes. So maybe if it was for staff, I would put my, my name in the, the mystery raffle, but I wouldn't because I know it's in the basket. So the mystery has been ruined for me. Yeah. I like that idea of making a mystery basket, blindfolding yourself and just grabbing <laughs> things. You're like, I don't know what's in the basket either. That would be really funny. Well, I, when I do it, I am like going to put, it's going to be like in like a little baggie. It's a mystery to us all. Like, like a sack kind of thing. So it'd be like really cool inside, but even when they get it, like they don't know oh, what's that's in it. Cool. They're just getting like, <laughs> what is it? You just keep unwrapping it. Exactly. Like, is there even yeah. a basket in here? <laughs> well, I'm on the same wavelength as you. I'm reading a lot of mystery and suspense. Um, and I was in the middle of Just the Nicest Couple by Mary Kubeka. And I, I get wrapped up in stories like, I don't know if it's because I'm overly empathetic, but they make me nervous. Like, when bad things happen to good people, TV shows, movies, books. So I had to put it down because bad things were happening to this really nice, the nicest couple. So, and it was making me all, like, um, my blood pressure was rising and I was getting very tense reading the book. So I had to take a break and I found this absolutely fun one on my reading list that I, it was on my to be red pile and it's called in the hall with a knife a clue mystery by <laughs> diana peterfreund and it is exactly what it is it's a clue mystery it's so much fun it's a teen book it's a teen mystery only the game board instead of being in a mansion is at an at a, uh, an academy oh. on a um, really hard to reach island up in Maine. Dark oh. Academia Volume Two. Oh, <laughs> it's so much fun! It's so much fun. So, um, and and of course you have characters like Mr. Body. So Mr. Body is the president. You have Orchid and Scarlet and Phineas Plum and Vaughn Green. And um, Mrs. White is um, a resident hall. She she is in charge of Tudor Hall, so that's that's where the game board kind of shrinks, and a lot of the murders take place in Tudor Hall, which is a dorm. So um, they have underground tunnels, and it has all those elements of of clue that you remember, secret passageways that lead from the kitchen to the to the study, and so it starts off. Um, there's a storm, there's this winter storm that strikes 
the academy on this island, and um, everyone flees to Tudor Hall because that's on higher ground, and there's flooding and and all and all, and all sorts of things going on in the island. So all these characters end up at Tudor Hall, and then the lights go out, and there's a scream, and there's a thud, and Mr. Body was later found dead in the conservatory. <gasps> Mr. Body was just the body. Oh, he was just the body, and it's like, who was... So you have um, Beth Picaw, Peacock, um, you know, you have all these characters who are now in this this game board tutor house, and you have to figure out who did it, and it's just so much fun. It's just, um, I'm not tense, I'm not stressed out, People are just dying, but she's fine. Oh, I'm just—it was—it's just like you know. It's so I'm so detached from it because because it's Clue and it's supposed to be a game board and it's not like just the nicest couple where where it could happen to you or your next door neighbor. I hate when they hit it books or movies strike too close to home. Like, what oh, if that yeah. was me? What yeah. if what if that happened to me? So I had to put it down, and then I quickly, within twelve hours, finished that one, and I read book two, which was in the study with the wrench. And now I'm on to book three in the ballroom with the candlestick, <laughs> and it's prom season. <laughs> and um, Dr. Brown was just found in the library, Uh-oh. murdered. Dun dun. Did she have a stroke? What happened? So. Yeah, so there's lots of murders in this in this series, and it's so much fun. <laughs> so if you're looking for a fun, detach yourself mystery, um, it's teen, but it's absolutely delightful. I love it. Um, I'm sad that this series is ending because I could keep going. Clue is so built up in my brain as this, this beautiful board game. So now that they have a good review, I think. Oh, it's, it's just, time. It's so much fun that time. it's at a camp. It's on a on a school ground. It's just fun. I was like, who would have... I think Clue should make an expansion pack Ooh. and add, add like, that a school a or, idea. like, a tutor house. Or there, there should be... See, Diana, I'm doing your promo for you. <laughs> I'm doing some merch. Think about some merch about you merch. should do. And you should team up with Clue. And you should do a school with an expansion pack of, the, like, the tutor house and, like, the chemistry lab and the administration building. Mm-hmm. And how much fun would that be? It's a pretty cool cover, too. I, I want 20%. <laughs> I'm saying it now. Start with 30, because I'll probably not I'm going to go on 20. Shark Tank. and <laughs> You heard it here. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. Yeah, how fun. But... On the flip side, um, I, this was a recommendation by a staff member. A shout out to John Keppel. John is a floating sub librarian, and he always, when every time he comes, he always gives me great suggestions. He's always into like creativity and art, and he suggested conscious creativity, look, connect, and create. And it's by Philippa Stanton. Um, it is. I found it so much fun. It's so colorful. It's almost like an Instagram picture with, with pictures. Like so, it, there's words. There's more. There's more than just pictures. So there's lots of words. But she she encourages you to really look, to pause, to I, to take pictures, to to just stop and breathe and, and look up, look down, look all around and just enjoy your environments. 
And she's saying that every, everyone, every one of us is creative in our own way. We can, we can create things, we can create beauty. Creatives are not, you know, on the 54th floor of some ad agency called Mad Men or something. Everyone is creative. Um, I'm watching that again. So that was very specific. <laughs> that was very specific. We started the series all over again. I'm sorry. That was very plopped in there. Um, so when I was at this conference, um, it was in Arlington, which is such a walkable city. So coming from here in the country, it was such a walkable city. And I had this book in my mind. So every day when I, I walked to the conference, I didn't Uber. I didn't. I walked. I walked mm -hmm. the two miles or a mile and a half, and I, every day I took a different way to the conference. I oh, took a different cool. street. I took alleys. I took parks. Um, I and I and I had this book in mind. So I looked up. I looked down. When I passed the bakery, I took a deep breath. I smelled. When I packed, it was so weird. Like, on every street corner, there's a gym. It's a very health conscious hmm. city. And everyone was in spandex and biking and looked very fit and trim. And I had a suck in my, no, I didn't <laughs> suck in my belly. But I, and every street corner, I would pass like this little workout place. And the doors, it would be 7.30 in the morning. And the doors would be open. And music would be blaring. And there's people like on rowing machines and doing their bike and sweating profusely. I'm like, dude, it's 7.30 in the morning. And the music is loud. But you look like you've been here since the crack of 4 a.m. Uh -huh doing your little thing Inspiring. but <laughs> but every day I just I just took a different it was so fun I just I really explored the city on foot and it was so much fun and such great memories of you know looking up and noticing patterns noticing colors noticing smells they had a lot of like um, different foods so every I would pass all these different restaurants and and then I came back home and I'm like I have to get in my car and drive everywhere so um, but in this there's a chapter in here about documenting everything that you see so it's kind of like a 30-day project or a 100-day pod project and and she's like you know if you decide to say like use Instagram after a couple of days you're gonna see this in your feed all the all this color and mm -hmm. pattern and and it's gonna be so inspiring so um, I need to get my my own Instagram feed back up because I've been so focused on the libraries that I I want to do this and um, it's a lot of fun so highly recommended. Low entry, nice. Yeah, <laughs> and such a perfect seg. I can't even believe you pivoted. Oh, <laughs> exactly. Look at Kat pivoted to me, <laughs> and I'm pivoting. So I'm passing nice. on to you. It was the perfect Maybe. order. Oh. That's crazy. Why? What do you have? Because <laughs> I am doing what makes a city. Oh, <laughs> I got three books that I've been reading. Like I've been reading so much stuff about smart cities. <gasps> Fun. Which always drove me crazy because I was like, "What in the heck is a smart city?" Like I, I just I don't know why I just had an immediate like eh, reaction to the name. And it, it kind of largely is branding because when we talk about smart cities, we're talking about like four or five totally separate things. And um, what really put it in a great space for me was Dream States, Smart Cities, Technology, and the Pursuit of Urban Utopias. And he does a great job of framing how cities have always relied on technology. Like urban development does not exist separate from technology. Those have always gone hand in hand. So the first chapters he talks about 
how water came to London, and it was after the Great Fire. They were building a bunch of encampments closer and closer together, and the going up a couple floors, and they were like leaning. They're like the alleys were very narrow just for someone to walk through, and they're like leaning and touching each other. What? Yes. So that you have these wooden structures that are essentially all connected. So one catches fire, they all burn down. Half of London burned down. And but when they built back, they were like, okay, well, clearly we need water. Like we could not get water into this in time. And like people didn't have drinking water, and that was not a concern. It was oh no, the city burned down. Economy, man. Exactly. So, but the unintentional consequence of if we have water here to put out the fire, A, we have better building codes. B, we have drinkable water. London, it grew exponentially after the fire because they had drinkable water. Oh, now you oh, could support okay. a much larger population than you did before. And it wasn't originally a public utility. And then electricity, he goes through, and the next chapter is electricity, and that kind of this same deal where people don't necessarily know that they need this thing, and then eventually it becomes a public, public utility, and how that impacts what a city is able to do, and what we even think of as a city, we just kind of take for granted, but it's been technology all along. So I really, really liked that framing of it, because it felt like this isn't some new like marketing gimmick, this is like... This is advancement of people living together. Like, this is how it happens. But it also really revealed this, like, you know, technology is a tool. It's not inherently good or bad. Okay. The drivers of the goodness and the badness are the people. People. So what do people want to do with the tech? And almost always, some of the first adopters are people that have nefarious ends. So technology is just a tool. What we, do, what we choose to do with it, what our public imagination is around what we could possibly do with a thing is so important because it's amazing to, like when you zoom out and you see how this is shaping, you know, until they needed water in London, we didn't really think about True. how to get it there. So it, the need is what drove it, but the perceived need, I mean, they had a need for it before everything caught on fire they needed drinkable water but they didn't perceive the need until the fire so thinking about it that way is has been really helpful for me and um in reframing some of my thinking around this um so kind of a (laughs) is poverty by america is my second book by matthew desmond he wrote evicted in 2016 this is his new one yes yeah i saw that come through yes and wow, th- this one is really good. This is very direct. So Evicted, he did a really good job of, um, because he had gone and lived with people, mm-hmm. and he, so he's profiling people and really talking to them at length and like you know showing people's stories over time and then using data to support that. It was a little denser of a read. This one is very direct. This one is like, you can't hide behind any... But it, he's just very, I mean, you can just really tell, like, his father was a preacher. It has a very, you could read this from a pulpit kind of a oh. feeling. It just is really a poetic and, I mean, yeah, lovingly, but n- he's not pulling punches. He's, you know, there is no excuse for, we, are, we have the ability to eradicate poverty. We're choosing not to. And why? why would that be? And he makes a very convincing argument that 
pretty much everyone else who isn't struggling to survive right now is benefiting in some way from the fact that we're making some people struggle to survive right now. And there, there's no way around it. And it just, it just is what it is. But he has a lot of really fantastic moments. Like he, he was talking about, um, how curious it is that we're like the, the way wealthy people currently present themselves is so um, unique in the whole history of like how rich people would present themselves as like a lot of pomp and circumstance and kind of showing off. And now rich people are very reclusive. Yeah, They want to go hide behind a, a wall. Like it's a developing country of <laughs> they're in an armored vehicle until they get to, and they have like private security and like very, you know, stuff that indicates we believe that we're in a precarious position oh. um it's not the kind of kind stuff of that you do when <laughs> yeah when you think of like in the past this like philanthropic mindset or like yes. you know it this it, this is very um we're getting away with something and we don't expect to be getting away with it much longer kind of behavior Ooh. and he also he, he says enough money brings quote-unquote financial independence which tellingly does not signal independence from work but from the public sector that the wealthier people get, they're working, they're supposedly quote unquote working all the time. They're always on conference right. calls. They're always, you know, and that like restlessness and dissatisfaction that characterizes wealth now, um, which is greed. It's greed. Yeah. It's, it's not this idea that, oh, you know, you're trying to buy back your own time is not how we approach wealth in America right now. Wow. What we're, what we're really doing is we want to create our all of our own little privatized systems of things so we don't have to interact with the public. Yeah. I mean, you have like pri separate prisons for wealthy people. <laughs> it's yeah. just like really yeah. crazy to think yeah. of. And then, you know, talking about all the implications of what does that mean when all of these resourced people pull out of a public sector for the funding of that sector. Right. So then you have like how we either don't have public parks or they're really run down. You don't have public transportation or it's really run down because the goal of the minute someone can get off of that, they don't want to use it at all. And so now there's a stigma around all of all public goods and how that just compounds. It's just further with this polarization and, and keeping us apart. Imagine if we had a Carnegie in 2023. Right. So, yeah. So it's like, on the you know one hand, I mean? you have like, a ton of problematic thinking around philanthropy, but the solution is not to just remove yourself entirely, no, try to remove yourself from society or think that that's even an option, because that's not really what is happening. When you go hide behind a, a wall somewhere, you're not actually removed from society. Everything's being brought to you or you're being brought <gasps> to other things. You know, like you're still relying on all of these oh, so public scary. goods and utilities and, and workforce. So, it, but then, you, you know, you have to get creative about hiding it because. <laughs> well, it's like ventilating not convenience culture, which is that we live in convenience culture where advertising invites us to check out to an extent and to not yeah but he does engage. a really good job of talking about how we act like it's invisible and we say oh all of these ways that we've made it invisible but 
we're all actually acting like we know exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so it's not so invisible. We know what we're <laughs> right, doing. Right, right, like, right. Well, that's no. like the double thing of it, isn't it? Is it's like, it's a problem with our own perceptions. Like survival of the richest engages that of, we can stop this. We can stop this by taking a hard look at ourselves. Like all these people yeah. who hide behind the walls and well, say and things like- Maybe being willing to, if, if you have more than you could possibly need. That's Yes, you're gonna. Yes, if you give some something away, you're gonna you're you're gonna lose something, but you don't need it. Yes, you're you are drowning yes. in water, and they need a cup of it. You you won't give up a cup of your own water that you have too much of to let someone who needs a cup of water have water. It, it's just insane. And then to act like oh, all of these reasons why? No, it's really not complicated. It's just greed. It's really just very yeah. plain and simple. Greed. There's a saying: you can't take it with you. Exactly. And it, so. and it's like all of these ways. And then, and then he does a really good job of talking about all the ways we've codified that into our society of we actually are like the number two spending welfare state in um, the world. But it doesn't, we're, we're not subsidizing our poor. We're subsidizing our wealthy people and all of the tax breaks. And basically, like, <laughs> if you look at tax breaks as government assistance, which is what it is, or alternately, if you look at quote unquote government assistance as a form of tax relief, which it also, it, you know, like this is just money from the government, <laughs> then it is like you could, you could just accept a lesser tax break and someone else could survive. Yeah. Like it's just insane. Yeah. So I don't know. It's really a good, um, good. reality check. And it's definitely supported by data, but he does a really good job of weaving a narrative and it, it doesn't feel like one of these data books where you're getting bogged down in factoids. Mm-hmm. He's, mm-hmm. he's really just like, Here, here's, the, here's the elephant in the room we're refusing to talk about, but we're all clearly seeing, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so awesome. like a wake-up call about like our criminalization of the poor and how we have all of this stigma around being poor as though it's your fault when you don't have money when really our system is built to ensure that it's very difficult to take yourself out of situational or generational poverty because the problem isn't the poor the problem isn't the poor Mm -mm. it's the rich Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. we're always talking about the poor Mm -hmm. and it really has nothing to do with them because really the whole point is we just need someone to exploit and so it's you know it's going to be this me or you mentality um you know, like, like weird, that's, yeah. he, he says, the question that should serve as a looping incantation, the one we should ask every time we drive past a tent encampment or every time we see someone asleep on the bus is simply who benefits? Mm-hmm. Who benefits? Mm-hmm. Because someone is benefiting from that. And that, mm-hmm. I thought it was really, really interesting because that was that systems thinking course that we took. Mm-hmm. Oh, is yes. When, when you have these chronic issues and you find all these different ways to address it and you think that you're, you know, you're talking to everyone and everyone agrees that, yeah, we need to do something different, but it, it just is like this sticky problem. It just keeps happening. What, why, why is this quote unquote broken? It is not broken. <laughs> it is working as designed. It is benefiting someone. So you have to figure out who benefits from this and then change that leverage. Yeah. You, ha- you have to either convince them to actually change and one of the ways to do that is start making them uncomfortable you can't you can't let it keep being comfortable to do that if it's not working for everyone else it has to not be working for them anymore so then my final thing is 
kind of so <laughs> I swear in my head all of these books are connected um <laughs> the the last one was referenced in this poverty by America and it's don't trust your gut using data to get what you really want in life which again everything about this title and the marketing I kind of cringe at <laughs> and it's so funny because I, I was thinking like I used to read more of these like economics style books where it's pop economics where they throw a bunch of figures at you and you're like oh your intuition is wrong and it's funny I actually found a new podcast called if books could kill oh oh <laughs> it's really a good one and they lampoon they call them airport books and so their first one was Freakonomics yes and then the second one was Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell oh which I have to say, I really, really loved Blink when it came out, and it was really good to hear their their take on Malcolm Gladwell and, and what that's about. Because I feel like oh, his whole thing is like, mm, you should trust your intuition a little bit more. And I feel like it, it was really a good comment at the time because we were on this precipice of realizing like obscene amounts of data are about to take over your life. And it was kind of this like, no, you can still trust your gut. Like you don't have to just throw out everything you think you know because you're going to be faced with a wall of information. Um, but now, kind of in the the wake of that, it is like the more the more we just keep going down this road of insisting on collecting data about everything, aggregating it, analyzing it, then thinking maybe that that's a better way to make a decision than. <laughs> And it's like you have to you have to balance those things. Mm -hmm. Like any solution is going to be, you have to balance it. Especially like anyone who collects data on the ground, you know how <laughs> unreliable oh. that information is. Like that is not. And there's like so I've read so many arguments, especially around AI, where they're like, well, it doesn't really matter if it's not a totally accurate because it's like an impressionist painting, right? If you have kind of the right color in kind of the right location, but you get enough of those little data points together and you zoom back, you're gonna, it's gonna look like the image. And it's an interesting argument. <laughs> I'm Cause fishing. at the core of it is like, we don't know what the heck we're talking about. Oh. <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's just, like it's that. really trippy. But um, anyway, don't trust your gut. Uh, has, does have some really surprising information. Uh, particularly what I thought was interesting was he talks about the role of luck in success and he talks mm. about Airbnb and basically <laughs> you can assume a constant amount of luck like over a long enough trajectory everyone's gonna get lucky and probably at roughly the same rate so this idea that oh people are successful because they got lucky well I mean yeah they did Usually there are that couple of moments in, in like a company's history where you're like, oh yeah, they got insanely lucky. But he said, you look at companies who failed and they have a lot of those same moments and they didn't, ca they didn't, oh, they didn't leverage it. They, they weren't ready when the, when their chance came, they, they missed it. Oh my gosh. So, um, so I, I, I like, I, he, and he did a really good job of like, you know, saying, okay, well, what about that? You know, like whatever your, he makes his argument and then like whatever your question in your head is, he'll be like, I thought of that. Here's, you know, so I ran the data of, so he's, he's a, uh, let's see, he was a data researcher somewhere. 
Anyway, um, <laughs> I can't, I, I didn't look it up, so now I can't find it. But how it came up in Poverty by America is he talks about how landlording is far and away the path to financial success in America mm. by like many multiples of magnitude. And so, you know, again, why would that be? Why, for one thing, yes, people need houses, but like, why, like the, ne- the next biggest ones are banking and car sales. So yes, these, these are things that everyone absolutely needs, right? And they generate some level of value beyond like the sum of their parts. But like, what about landlording is so valuable to people? Especially when we talk about, oh, rents are now like higher mm-hmm. than it is to have a mortgage on a house. So, so what's going on there? Like, how would you make money doing that? The bank, the bank will lend to you, whereas it wouldn't lend to your renter. So that's how oh. you're making money doing that. Wow. Does he talk about how that correlates to, like, for example, in the 1910s especially, that's how, like, the Astors made a ton of their money. Like, when we had the very wealthy 1% term slumlord was coined. And so, I mean, a lot of those practices just continue today, but they're oh. just in different language or, yeah, they just, or wrapped in like pretty paper in some other manner. Or like we think that we've, oh, that was a hundred years ago. We think that we've evolved. We really haven't because no. it's still on the mm-hmm. books the way that it was. Uh, Matthew Desmond does talk about how the, the most money is to be made in, in poor housing. <clears throat> that like wealthy apartments have like 25% return. The middle class apartments are like the lowest margin and um impoverished is like that's the hive you really want to make money because you're going to have no investment and it's you can mark it up you can just mark it up as long as you're right under whatever the next level is and people don't have the resources people are forced to yeah they have no other option (sighs) so it is like this is like you know who benefits from this a lot of people a lot of people mm-hmm. and especially you know in matthew desmond makes a really good argument all of us to a greater or lesser extent like we if you want your groceries to be a certain price then you can only afford to pay workers so much so you need a workforce that's willing to work for that yeah, yeah. so it's uh it's it's interesting. I don't to me it's it's sort of going like okay, what actual needs do we have that technology could meet because the first people to have the imagination around technology tend to be very exploitative people. So mm-hmm. it's so I don't know for a while I guess my reaction was I don't even want to look at it. But that's irresponsible. That's the conclusion I'm coming to. When you look at it from a humanist perspective, like we find it horrifying and then want to do something or break down those structures or analyze them. But so much of it is tied to, it's about power and people who enjoy oppressing other people, people who don't want technology to be used to create you know, a basic just living wage for everyone as work is phased more into AI or what have you because it's about power and oppression. And how do you oppress people? You harness economy to oppress them well and that but like again I, I just kept thinking yeah like are people really sadistic and I'm sure there is some of that but I really do think it's like if you think if you on some fundamental level like you believe you also are only one bad event away from yourself being homeless then 
the desperation of people that you, you would, like, on the outside, it seems like you could, like, relax now. You're fine. I think it goes, like, back to blind spots then of, like, I don't know that people really would even view themselves as sadistic. Like, when, like, for example, in Survival of the Riches, when they call him in to tell them, like, how would we get through the event and he's like well prevent the event but like just this total unwillingness to lifestyle change or idea that that they're right it's like and I think that's like where the disconnect comes is we all have these huge blind spots or ways we see the world and people who isolate themselves from the reality of the world that becomes their reality and some people may be you know afraid and retreating behind gates or buying stock in farms that are barred off from the rest of the world in case of the apocalypse or what have you but I think that some people really do, or a lot of people really do believe that their spot in this little hierarchy, they really have earned it and they, they really don't want, they don't want to change or maybe they can't handle what they have oh, done. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder that about the tech world a lot. Is it that they can't see it or is it that literally their brains would explode if they saw mm-hmm. what has happened? But this book is about obviously breaking down poverty in America. It's like more philosophical. Well, or, or like, yeah, I don't know, I guess and maybe it's Pollyannish, but I wonder, like, how would that change people's behavior if you could trust for a long enough period of time over multiple administrations, regardless of who's in power or whatever, that there was a social safety net for you? Like, you know, if you became untethered, that it that wouldn't just be it, that you had, like, options. Like, if there was a public infrastructure again, would that enable you to then think about your options or take op- different opportunities or not just take whatever's the most money but actually start thinking about you know what do you want to do with your life besides survive mm-hmm. like well does he talk in that book about like whether or not the breakdown of people's understanding of civic engagement is informing this like for example when people don't know what we do at a library or people get upset because there are potholes on the road they didn't realize oh well this has to be funded to have workers to come fill said potholes and how like public works, all of that is interconnected. But they don't really... Well, they he, still, he talks, he talks about, about like just ta- this total lack of understanding. Tax breaks led to crumbling infrastructure, mm-hmm. which led to people with money saying, I can just buy my way out of this system altogether, yeah. which means that now they further don't want to fund the thing. Yep. So they're advocating for only ever more tax breaks. But then the curious part is the poor people feel so embarrassed about Mm -hmm. how awful it is. They're also calling for the, you know, like they're like, you know, this isn't safe. So, and so they're also looking like they don't want to use public transportation either. They don't want to hang out in a park because they're not, they don't feel comfortable doing that. And so, yeah, you end up with like, (laughs) it's hard to make the argument for a thing if now no one wants to use it. Mm. And that's when I get frustrated, which is it is really difficult to find out what an office is supposed to even be doing. It's like there's just this total, I think, absence of very clear information about this is what this particular office is funded to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to me as well. I like talk about my grandmother a lot, but it's so fascinating to talk to her about stuff like this because she grew up, she was born 26, so she saw pre-Social Security. So her childhood during the Great Depression so informs why Mm -hmm. she is so personally invested in Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and public works because she remembers what it was like before. Um, And then she watched that build. But then I realized 
a lot of her very set opinions and her public service mindset is because she watched them build those and was a participant in that process. Therefore, she understands on a level of things that sometimes are invisible to me or that are now gone that I didn't even realize we had at one point. Mm -hmm. So it's like that generational breakdown Mm -hmm. of Uh knowledge is power because sometimes even when you're researching it, it's like, oh my God, I didn't even know that that existed. I didn't even know that that was an option and look at all the things that that would have solved. And that's very frightening. Yeah, yeah, he definitely, he says... 75% 75% of people, I couldn't believe it. I just kept reading it over and over. I'm like, that can't be right. 75% of people who qualify for TANF, which is Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which is the current, when we think about welfare, that's usually what we're essentially referring to. 75% of people who qualify for that don't apply. We, ha- we allocate all of this money for people. It's going unclaimed, and they're like, why? Is it stigma? Is it pride? Blah, blah, blah. And they're doing all the these form? studies, <laughs> and it, it, they, no one knows what it's called. Mm-hmm. No mm-hmm. one knows how to apply for mm-hmm. it. No yes. one knows if they qualify or not, and that, oh my goodness, is that a painful process? And then even if you get all of that, that way in, the application process is so onerous. People are turning down money that desperately need money. Like, that's how, and again, didn't used to be this way. Doesn't have to be this way. We've done this on purpose. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's like paying lip service. Like, oh, we had this great program. Oh, no one used it. It's like, well, you made it impossible. Right. Right. Like you made it impossible. And he's like all of these initiatives where people basically like raise awareness around the thing and help people fill out the forms. You can make huge strides in the uptake on these programs. Meanwhile, yeah, he'll have the same statistics flipped for, like, how many people are claiming these various tax credits in these certain brackets. It's everybody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, I don't, it's, uh, it was, I recommend it very highly. Um, also, I'm going to an eviction prevention summit he's speaking at in um, Youngstown later this week. But you can actually... Uh, Community Legal Aid, which is a nonprofit like lawyer yeah. organization in Akron, uh, did this same summit in Akron last year. And on their YouTube, if you click on the live tab and then Eviction Prevention Summit main session, they just put up the entire live stream of the session. So it's three hours and 52 minutes into it. You can hear his talk from last year. Didn't you go to that? I, I watched it last okay. year online. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, this year I get to go in person and I'm excited for the panel discussions and it should be good, but um, so we'll have all of that in the description because that <laughs> I mean that is so worthy. So yeah, I've, I've thank you read a ton of these lately, but yeah, those were some good ones and right. And you'll find all these books on our display. Yeah, mm-hmm. our beautiful little. If I don't ha- if you don't see it, it's because I have it. Right. <laughs> yeah, Poverty by America. It'll take a second because there's a list. So get there's on the whole list. list. Yeah. Um, but I probably can put out evicted and then dream states you have to get through search Ohio but mm-hmm. again I definitely recommend it especially if you've been hearing smart city and you're kind of skeptical it's not necessarily going to sell you on the idea of smart cities and that's sort of that's not my angle either but um yeah just reframing it to be like thinking about cities different and honestly like the first three chapters I felt really hopeful like it felt like what we do really can make an impact like it just in all sorts of impacts we couldn't have foreseen so yeah good so this was a fantastic discussion but unfortunately we're going to bring it to a close and um, just pick us up next time and (laughs) 
you know, there'll be another fantastic discussion. So who's going to take us to a close, to scene? The Richfield Branch Library is a branch of the Akron Summit County Public Library. Our theme music is Examples by Katza. It was made available to us through a Creative Commons license on the Free Music Archive.